think of a better first guest. How does it work out for two of three that we have here in the Bay Area for occasional, occasional visits? Producer and author Ian Brennan, who we have worked with. How long have we been working together now? It's a, it's all kind of a blur. Uh, it's been a while. Um, we've not been working together longer than we've been working together because I'm uh, I'm a San Francisco Bay Area dude, and it took a long time to to find something that that, that enticed you. But we're now we're there, and we're it's it's been beautiful. And it's been wonderful. It's been a, it's been a while. Well, we've worked together on a number of projects now. As I was saying to you before we started this, you have been doing a lot of press stuff. You've been out on the road and talking a lot about the latest album that you've done together, the Tanzania album that you directed. And I wanted to kind of not just go over the same stuff over and over again that you've covered in a lot of great uh, podcasts and interviews. And I would steer people towards one you did recently with um, my old friend John Schaefer for Soundcheck at WNYC, which I think goes into some really nice depth on and background an overview of how you got started in this and, and what you've done. But I, I would like to go back to when we did first meet. We met through a mutual friend, Barry Simon, who was an attorney in San Francisco. And I, I did know of you, and I actually, I think we're at some of your brainwash shows back back in the day. You want to talk a little bit about how you, those early shows that you did? And well, you know, I mean, uh, the brainwash was is a laundromat in San Francisco and, and I started doing three shows there in 96 and I reached a point where I put out a whole bunch of records most of them were bad and, and they were getting a little bit better but I wasn't really where I wanted to be as an artist and I just decided I was going to do the things I would have done if I'd been more successful which is try to raise some money for charity and, and try to play regular shows where I could have an incentive to write and try to collaborate with other artists and I started recording and I did it for five years and I deliberately would do it with bands I didn't necessarily always like I felt like there was something important about doing that and the, 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 the silver lining of it all that I never anticipated was that it taught me a lot about engineering which I didn't really want to be an engineer and it taught me that you could basically potentially record anywhere which has come really in handy with all the travels yeah you we'll, we'll get to that obviously you've been a real champion of recording au natural and not uh, restricting recording sessions to these sterile uh, studios but uh, before we start talking about that a little bit we met the first time we met in north beach in a coffee place and and you outlined to me the story of Gailed me for I don't know an hour or so with these, which seemed to me just unbelievable facts about this prison in Malawi, which now is officially, am I right, the poorest nation on earth, where inmates are in for you know some of them are real criminals have done some bad things, but many people are in there for things that we would consider crimes, witchcraft, crazy things like that, and this project that you had done went in there and you workshopped with the prisoners and the guards and recorded music. And, and I, I remember very vividly going home that night and uh, having dinner with my wife and, and daughter and telling them, repeating the things that you told me that happened in this, in this prison. And them literally not believing it. Just saying, that can't be true. And I know that you said this in your interview with, with John Schaefer that you and your wife Marilena try really hard to be factual about these events that lead up to these projects that you do, but even you sometimes think, are, 
exaggerating, and in this case, you were not exaggerating. So I went to work the next day and talked to Pat Berry, my business partner, and I told him all of this, and I said, we need to do this record. I almost don't care what it sounds like, but, you know, if the music's good, which thank goodness it was, um, we, we need to do this, and that's the first project that we worked on. So maybe you could just give us a little background about how you got this on the prison and um, how you wound up making music with these prisoners. Yeah, I mean, we had a history, Marlena, Deli, and I, my wife, who does all this project and video, have a history in Malawi. Her, she has a history that goes back even further than mine, and the incredible work in her father as a history that goes back to the 1960s, and uh, uh, even means the relationship while she was alive. And um, the thing is, is that, uh, I think I've said this before, but I really want to say this, especially here, is that people need to understand that Six Degrees, you, Bob, did the record because you felt it was the right thing to do, and no one had any expectation that it would be anything more than it was uh, a record in Chichewa from the poorest country in the world that might interest a few uh, folks that maybe like quote-unquote world music and maybe a few others, and that was going to be that. So, um, you know, I think karmically it's really beautiful the way it's paid off, but we, we went there seeking voices and seeking music uh, from the underrepresented, and uh, we'd already been there and worked with the Malawi Mouse Boys, who are incredible and, and come from one of the poorest regions of the poorest country in the world, which is, is, is an important aspect. And then we went into the prison where I think, you know, pretty much anywhere you go in the world, prisoners tend to be maligned, they tend to be underrepresented, and we were just astounded by, by what what they had to offer, particularly the women who, who uh, were not even considered musicians, who contributed over the half of the, half of the song to the first album. So we wound up making two records together, which is what we come to know as the Zombie Prison Project. And somewhere along the line, we got interest, you got interest in Sixteen And that really has turned that project into a bit of a phenomenon. Uh, the Sixteen Minutes episode has aired three times um, and just won the Emmy Award, which was found out last week, for what is it, Best Story in a News Magazine? Outstanding feature uh, uh, in a news magazine. And it's, it's really incredible because it's similar. I think it's a, it's a similar arc in that uh, Michael and David, the uh, producers, uh, the, the London-based producers, that particular team for 60 Minutes took this on also because they really believed that it, this was a story that was important and needed to be heard. It was logistically a much harder uh, a, a story than they often do. The, the, some of them are logistically difficult. And, uh, and not an easy story to tell because it's pretty complicated on the one hand. It has a lot of players. I mean, there were over 60 people involved in the first record, artists alone. And uh, they were lucky enough to get Anderson Cooper involved. And he was just you know, so, so great and, and you know, made it work with very little time available. And, has such a strong work ethic, and, and it was it was amazing. It was an incredible experience. Uh, not to be on, you know, that it was going to be on television, just to be around a group of people that were journalists that really had high, 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 high standards, but also were doing things completely for the right reasons, which was to try to seek out the truth of the story. So the fascinating thing about the project we do, or some of the that in some cases we're dealing with musicians, uh, people, who, uh, people who've played before and have some experience. 
to a large extent we're seeing people that have never really performed before or certainly not recorded And I remember when the record first came out, the, the breadth of responses that we got from the quote-unquote traditional world music press and community, some people absolutely got to their credit. And there were people that really spoke about the honesty of music and the real emotion But we definitely got a good amount of, I don't get it, they're not singing on pitch. This isn't African music, this isn't what I, where's the, where's the happy, chiming, high-life guitars, where's this, where's that? And it seems to me that if you've done, well, I think you've done a great service in, in a lot of ways with the practices, but if you've done any real great service that may have a lasting impact, it's this idea, and we've spoken about this, how everyone can be a musician, everyone has the potential to be a musician, and just because someone doesn't necessarily, I mean, I would rather hear someone sing a song, and I know you do this, incredibly honestly from their souls to the point that I feel off-pitch then hear Mariah Carey go up and down scales of perfect pitch and drive, and drive me insane. At what point did you come to that conversation? What led you to feeling that way? Everyone can be a musician, and not only that, these unheard voices should be recorded. Well, I mean, I, I, there's, there's two parts to that. I guess I, I identify with underdogs because I kind of was one. I was a little fat kid with
to me, that's a really beautiful experience. Um, and it's one that I'm afraid that in the West we have, you know, really it is in the West, but in a lot of countries we have less and less. And I think just on a, on a purely practical level, the other end of it, the quote-unquote trained musician, the skilled musician, that's been documented again and again and again and again. And this whole idea of going to the core and finding that spark where it's just, it's true. It's true whether it's sung, whether it's spoken, whether it's rap, um, is, is really a beautiful thing. So um, we had by the standards of the industry, let's just say, we had, we had some great successes in that process. And certainly, it got a lot of recognition. A tremendous amount of people. And seeing the feedback that we got from people after the first airing was really, really beautiful. And it's interesting to me, a lot of it was from very religious, spiritual people. You know, we got a lot of it, I know you saw it, well, God bless you, you're doing the Lord's work. And it was very interesting, because I don't think we normally would have so uh, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about how our country is very divided, uh, and we have this sort of culture war between the left and the right. But I think that this honest, beautiful story that also happened to have some musical components to it really bridged bridged that gap. Have you have, have you thought about that? Is that something? That's I haven't thought about it like that. That's very articulate and unique, and I think insightful. Um, but it's true that that uh, you know certainly I think it. Maybe attracted people that have a more, uh, you know, explicit conscious spirituality, but I also think it brings out that which has been largely denied in our culture. I mean, I would identify it as 1980 was, was a real division uh, where we began to shift into, you know, uber capitalism and selfishness began to be recoded as courageous. And these things are lies. Um, and uh, I think that that. Doing things voluntarily is very important. Volunteering is very important because when we do that, and this is why you know the whole idea of real musicians sometimes have day jobs, when we do that where there's not money involved and not profit involved and that's not the driving force, then, then the heart is, is committed you know, to, to the activity. And this is, they oftentimes measure it and they call it the zero principle that most people will work harder for free than they will for money because the minute you give them money, they start measuring their labor. Um, and is it enough? Uh, you know, how much should I give? Um, so if I really and sincerely want to help you move your couch on Saturday, I'll do it. And uh, otherwise, you're going to have to pay me a lot of money, you know, I, you know, you know, to, 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 to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you owe me some money. <laughs> okay. No, I would do it for free. So, but, you know, so the heart has to be in it. And and I think that, um, you know, there's a real danger. And I see this with some of my friends even, and, and, and even really talented people, is that it's easy to kind of get within the system, the music industry, what's left of it, and begin to feel, though it would never be articulated in this way, that they're owed a living. And I think day jobs build character, and uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a day job. And most of my favorite music, uh, old forms, folk music, roots music, came from laborers. You know, whether they were prisoners, whether they were farmers, whether they were fishermen, um, uh, you know, whether they were barbers, uh, whether they were shepherds. And, and when you talk about Tanerawan, you know, still shepherds. When you talk about... Uh, the good ones and Malawi Mouse Boys that are still farmers to this day. Uh, so 
I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I don't think that they, they can't coexist. So we should mention that uh, some of those groups that you just referenced, Tinaroin and the good ones, are other projects that you've worked with on, on other labels other than ours. We do occasionally let you do projects for other, for other <laughs> labels. But, um, okay, so Zamba comes out. We do two records. We get all this recognition. Did you have a sense... Did you and Marlena sit down and say, wow, what are we going to do to follow this up? Was there a sense of pressure or was there just sort of the same the same sort of inspiration that you've always had? Let's find the next combination of a great story and great music. Did Were you worried? How are we going to follow this up? Not really. I mean, because uh, I'm not a careerist. If I never make another record, that's okay. I don't think that I'm important. I don't think that what I do is important. But if I can make a contribution in some small way, I'm happy to. I'm proud of what we've done in the sense that I'm very happy to have met so many of these people. And I feel blessed to have these experiences. And what they will result in ultimately, who knows, prob maybe this is it, or maybe there'll be more down the line, but I really believe in anonymous, uh, you know, contributions and, and, and that are, are important, and that, uh, you know, if some somebody hears 30 years from now a snippet of the Zomba Prison record and that motivates them to do something themselves, musically or otherwise, that, for me, is a success, and, and, and I don't need credit for that, so I, d I didn't really feel pressure um, and it's really important to me that these projects, that people are clear that they might have a really strong backstory and they might have a really strong charitable aspect. They almost always do to varying degrees. But we will not put out records unless we believe in them and unless we believe in the songs. And so if somebody doesn't like them, that's fine. They're not wrong. But they better know that, that, that we've shelved records because we don't believe in the music, even when the story's as good or better than Zomba Prison. Yeah, and we, we should say, and I know you've said this frequently, and I have as well, these these records are not for everybody. If no. if you're a fan of, you know, fabricated pop music or, or even a certain kind of world music that's become very popular that in its own way can be can be fabricated. And, and again, not to diss that stuff. No, there's, a, there, there's a place for everything, but if you like your stuff slick and... and um, everything perfect then these are probably not records for you um but if you're the type of person that when you hear the truth when you hear someone sing something and you know it's coming from a very very real place and that does happen occasionally in pop music uh, you know but let's not say it doesn't but um if if real emotion if real life experience and frankly real hardship you know when it's articulated musically touches you and means something to you and you haven't heard these records i, I would highly recommend you seek them out because I, I think that they're very special in that regard so that brings us to the next project that that we've done together which is the tanzania albinism collective which is another equally um, horrific background story that when you tell people and I have had this experience again they literally do not believe me but the fact of the matter is that people afflicted with albinism particularly in East Africa have this horrible situation where they're simultaneously considered demonic and unhuman um, and they're shunned societally but at the same time their body parts and their internal organs are thought to have magical properties so um, am I getting that right I want to make sure yeah. that yeah that I'm being accurate 
So this is possibly, you've said this, and I, and I, I think there's that, not that many people that would argue, this is possibly one of the most oppressed peoples on the planet. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you can... Would gauge that or want to compete, though, with the idea of, of you know, mutilation while alive is, is uh, I, how much more severe could something be? And But it's the level of social ostracization that many of them have suffered and continue to suffer, the level of daily menace that I, I don't think we can, any of us, really fully comprehend uh, those experiences. We can only attempt to have empathy with them, which is... Is the goal, and and um, you know it's uh, incredible the courage of these individuals, not voluntary courage. Was there was 
a period where you were frankly sweating it out and going, I don't know, and then someone stepped up to the mic and did something, you know, brought the hassle to the back of your neck up, or, you know, at what point was it like, okay, I, I think this is going to pay off? Well, this record was a little different, um, but, uh, because I think it is truly a collective. It's uh, 20 individuals on the record telling kind of one story with you know, where many of them have had similar experiences and the voices are diverse, but then there's a lot of commonalities. Um, and, you know, I, I think midway, we were doing songwriting workshops and, and literally the songs got better with each passing day. And, and there's no, uh, you know, uh, by design, it, there's a disobligation from, from trying to conceptualize too much. So with Samba Prison, we ended up with the women, uh, you know, contributing over half of the songs, but that, that was not a political statement. It was just those were the songs that worked the best, and it wasn't even until the Grammy nomination over a year later when we were doing so many interviews and started looking back at the record that I even realized that fact. And So similarly here, uh, you know, it wasn't by design, but when I look back now, I realize that the majority of the songs on the record come from the later part of the songwriting workshop, the later days, because you're going from people who've never written songs to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days later, they've written nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen songs, and not so surprisingly, uh, they, they, they were improving, and, and so, you know, I think that, that midway, it, it became clear, I mean, there's a wealth of material, there's, there's, there's so many songs and so many voices, and um, so, you know, uh, w with each passing day, it, it just gained even greater momentum, uh, and so, we're very pleased with, with the result, and I think one of the great things about it is is the complexity, um, the joy that's brought to what are sometimes harrowing subjects, and, and uh, the fact that it's not monochromatic in that way emotionally. So you have a very interesting background. Uh, you worked for a while in Lockfight Wars, am I, am I correct? And, and you also have a background doing anger management. How does a white dude like you from Northern California go to Tanzania and relate to incredibly oppressed people? First of all, there's an issue like that, also not no translators involved. Um, how do you gain their trust? And not only gain their trust, but get them in a place where they are comfortable enough to create and make music. I mean, I'm sure every project is different, but there probably are. I don't know how he did it or how I did it. I, I don't really think in those terms. I really think in terms of what's universal. Um, not in a touchy-feely way, in quite a literal way. Uh, probably, uh, again, by accident. It's like uh, recording for five years every week in a, in a laundromat in south of Market Area. It's uh, prepared me to do outdoor field recordings. Uh, working in the psychiatric emergency room for 15 years, doing emergency psychiatric interviews with a diverse range of strangers, everybody from the homeless Vietnam vet to, uh, you know, somebody who had a domestic disturbance on a Sunday night and was drunk during uh, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, I, I guess, you know, there was maybe an aptitude, um, and then also, you know, a skill that was developed to have to, de to develop almost instant rapport, because the expectation was, you would do an interview with somebody the minute they hit the door. The interview would be done quickly, meaning 10 to 15 minutes, and in those 10 to 15 minutes, you would find things out about them that they probably 
in many cases had never told anybody about addiction, about abuse, about suicidality, about homicidality, about assault, about depression. Um, and uh, so I guess somehow maybe, maybe that contributes, but more than anything, I just really have faith in the goodness and the health and the worthiness of, uh, um, you know, my fellow man and, and my, uh, my fellow person and my fellow woman. And, and again, that comes back to um, probably growing up with my sister and, and, and just the, she's the most empathic person, one of the most empathic people I've ever known. Um, and I value, I value emotion um, in many ways more than intellect. I value both. Um, and I think that ultimately it's, it's, it's more powerful and it's more universal. In the same way that, you know, the relationship I've had with some dogs and cats is, is more profound than, than ones I've had with some people that might remain superficial over years and decades. So having said that, Humility, hopefully, uh, you know, and greater empathy, and uh, just the, the 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 luxury of having a little bit better understanding of the world, and hopefully myself and other relationships as well. And, and, and so, without that, I think it's it's fairly worthless. It's, it's self-serving. Um, I, I I don't think that it's even uh, ethical, really, to travel across the world, but it, to do it. Um, in a way that maybe deepens uh, one's ability to relate to people no matter where you go. Um, I think that that's very common because I, you know, I love the people we record with. I love music. And to bring those two things together is you know, something that, that is a source of profound joy. And hopefully, hopefully on occasion or, or often it, it, it also can be shared with other people and in a way that can enrich their lives too. Nonetheless, I mean that—that's a way bigger contribution to humanity than 
Justin Bieber will ever make. And I, and I have a crystal ball. I'm telling you, that is a bigger contribution than he will ever make if he lives to be 190. So, uh, you know, and, and, and this is why I think, you know, pop stardom and, and the Western music industry and the idea of heroic authorship is such a dangerous thing.
still listen to recorded music in the future. I think those are assumptions you can't even necessarily make. Um, it may return back to a more active live, uh, you know, improvisational spirit. I don't know if that will or will not occur. I think that punk rock music was hijacked uh, by people, by the ego, by narcissism. The point of punk rock was not that anybody should be a star, it's just that it was that there could be no stars, right? And, and to break down the barriers between the audience and the performer, and the barriers are just becoming greater, literally, physically great. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the jazz tradition was that you would uh, make something new every night, and what do people do now? They repeat the same show every night, and, and not the same set, the same show. They, 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 they cannot do anything differently because the, the cart is leaving the horse and is before the horse and, and you know the, the lighting cues and the sound cues and the, and the are, are, are what really dictate because people have too much money at stake. When you have you two going out and making eight million dollars a night, grossing eight million dollars a night, there's a lot at stake and and, uh, and and there really shouldn't be. You know, music should be free. You know, uh, people often watch music videos with the sound off. I mean, that's how full, full circle it's sort of come. And uh, unfortunately, there was that little window uh, when MTV was kind of dying and, and the internet was starting up where people were throwing up cheap videos. But now we're seeing the most expensive videos ever made, just incredible videos that sometimes feature stars and the production values are, are you know, impressive.
that work for you? And are the are there inherent stresses within that? And um, yeah, I mean, have you ever thought about this? Any given stress? Well, I think um, Marlene is an incredible human being um, and is very selfless, and she is someone who uh, is very winning in terms of her her spirit that almost everybody uh, enjoys her presence um, because there is so little judgment and yet so much positivity and it's so genuine and real um, and uh, you know there's also strength uh, but but it's 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 not harsh and I think that has a lot to do with it so I mean sure I mean every relationship is complex and, and uh, when traveling it, things can be pretty stressful but we really are united and we really are a team and we really have little ambivalence about what it is that we're doing and we trust each other and I think um, you know lack of ambivalence has so much to do with it and sometimes the technology now one of my beefs is is that it creates so much ambivalence and ultimately paralysis with something that should be ultimately an enjoyable joyous process to make music and, and that's not to say that people shouldn't work hard and woodshed and, and that that some people might reach you know incredible heights through through their discipline but in the end you, you know you, if you don't love doing it don't do it so now you guys are new parents is that going to change things Does it feel you adventurous to far flung lands for extended periods of time in the offing or what, how's that going to work yeah I mean so far there's no signs of stopping we've got uh, a, a trip to Africa and a trip to Middle East already set up our, our, our daughter uh, Corey has already been involved in recording uh, projects and, 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 and you know it's just another team member at this point and um, you know we'll see I mean uh, hopefully she'll do whatever she wants to do with her life and I am happy if she does anything as long as she's kind to other people I don't have any expectations of her being an artist or being a doctor or, or anything just be kind to other people and hopefully be happy and not suffer too much um, but in this process so far um, there's a very important image for me just personally was that uh, we were in these ancient ruins that are over 2,000 years old the quoting recently and Marlena got on her back wearing the baby who at the time I guess was seven months old on her chest and they were laying on the ground and she's taking photos laying on her back in this ancient ruin and there's bugs crawling everywhere and I, I looked at our daughter and uh, and she understood that it was important and it was and she was interested and she was quiet and I thought wow <laughs> she's more <laughs> she's she's uh, she's she's smarter than I am so I want to wind down uh, and just sort of acknowledge that you know as the business part of the music industry gets more and more challenging we find different ways to produce we really work Everybody is pulling their weight and coming together and working together towards achieving whatever the goal is, making a great record, promoting music. And I have to say, I've been in the business a very long time, and uh, you are perhaps the most tireless champion of your projects that I have ever worked with, to the point where sometimes, no offense, it seems on the, on the, on the border of obsessiveness. And... Um, which, which, no, I mean, I feel obsessed with my own practice. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. But, you know, we 
when we put a record out, we hired publicity people, we hired radio people, and there's a whole team of people that come together to try to subscribe to success. But no one ever works harder for these projects than you do. And is that just part of the whole DIY attitude? Is that just part of like, damn it, if this person's not getting me that interview, I'm going to get that interview? And just uh, where, where, do, where does this come from? I well, I think it comes uh, out of a, a sense of duty and responsibility and obligation to the, the voices involved that, that uh, I want them to be heard. And, and, and I think if I, if I just, you know, leave them, uh, feed them to the wolves and they're passive in the process, that I'm really doing them a disservice. And uh, so it's never competitive. I'm, I'm, I'm happy when, when someone is interested. I'm happy when opportunities come. I'm happy wherever they come from. But I'm also very willing and happy to assist. It's not what I want to do. I'd rather be home reading a book. I'd rather be doing nothing. I mean, those are my favorite things: sleeping and reading and, and being left alone and and not emailing and not, and uh, and you know not necessarily socializing. Uh, but but I do. I feel and I I have images in my heart and images in my head of, of many of these artists and we keep sustainable relationships with them. And 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 over time, I. I begin to feel even more of a responsibility to them. And I also begin to feel more of a sense of the importance and righteousness of their being heard in comparison to so much of the shit that gets promoted and the fact that certain people that think they're worldly, especially in America, are some of the most parochial people you'll ever meet. And I would love to crack that shell a little bit more, but I, I don't, I'm not sure it's possible. You know, um, And these are non-commercial. This is the non-commercial world. I, I, I don't have hopes of the commercial world bending, but when you see people in the non-commercial world really believing that they're representing diversity and, and they're so far from it, it's, it almost makes me ill. Um, it certainly fuels my fire a little. Yeah, I mean, I've had conversations with people uh, in the quote-unquote world music establishment on both where they've they've said they think it's bad. And I've said, my response to that always is, you can say you don't like it. You can say it's not for you. But you can't say it's <coughs> bad. Something this real, something this true, something this, you know, passionate, is bad, but that kind of codifies preconceived notions of what is and what is not music, and then what is world So, so one of the battles that you, one of the things that you've been great at accomplishing is you've been able to get musicians um, uh, sometimes to big festivals like the Golden Festival, and in fact, you were able to get the some of the collective, now the collective, to warm up this last year. And I know that was a real sort of up and down adventure for you, and I know none of us what the result was going to be. And in fact, there was a sort of uh, a test night before the actual Womack performance where things were a little bit shaky. And then when the group finally came out on Womack, it was a revelation that many people, not, not just you and me, many people said it was the event of the festival. And, uh, again, as we did when Zamba, the Zamba story ran on 60 Minutes, we got tremendous correspondence from people that were there. 
so I guess I'm wondering, what do you think happened here? Because it was the first time that they were all off out of Tanzania, right? Um, and so here they are in the UK for the first time, and then there was this festival played for thousands of white people. Um, and what do you think happened? Why, why do you think it went from this sort of tenuous first show to all of a sudden they came out and they were freaking rock stars? Well, I mean, I think that, that uh, they, they rose to the occasion. They certainly could understand the importance of it to them and to other people and the trust that had been placed in them. And unfortunately, we couldn't bring all 20 people, so we were forced to make choices. Um, and and I, I'm sad about that on the one hand, but I think it did. It did. Also, the, the unintended uh, result from that was probably that the people that did come felt even more responsibility to represent their community and to represent the, the, the collective. And um, I think there's a fearlessness that, that sometimes the artists have because of what they face daily. So stage fright is is really inconceivable. The least of the problems, you know, I mean, when you face starvation and you face, in, in the case of the album movement community, rape and, and, and you know, and menace and mutilation and, and social ostracization and being locked in rooms for, for days and months and years and in darkness and, and, you know, being denied food and water. And so I, I think you, 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 you take all that and, and then we start talking about passion or angst or, you know, the things that oftentimes Western artists work so hard to kind of conjure from sort of nothing, uh, relative comfort. Um, you know, it's powerful. And it, when they did the, even when they did the London warm-up show, which was a disaster, the first couple songs, um, there was a man, a uh, young man, big guy, kind of big, uh, you know, British bar kind of guy, and he came up to me very confrontationally, and I thought he was maybe going to say that he didn't like it or that it wasn't good, and uh, but I wasn't certain, and he came up to me, and he hugged me, and he was crying, and he said that was the most honest performance he'd ever seen in his life. And for me, that's the, the highest goal is, is honesty. Um, you know, so again, good, bad, I, those things don't really exist. Honest and unique, those things do. And, and, and there's a level of honesty that, that is so powerful. And with the Tanzania Albinism Collective, um, the, uh, Teresa, the, wo the, the woman who came, sang a song that was so joyous, a new song that she had sung. And, 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 um, and then one of the people in the audience, during it was a, it was a cooking session where they were, you know, interacting with the audience and cooking, and she sang this song, and, 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 uh, and the woman asked her, well, wh what is this song about? And she said, oh, it's I'm asking my mom and my dad to, 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 to help me, and, 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 and because her mother and father had abandoned her, and, and come help me, and she said, I especially need help because of the fact that people are persecuting me with albinism, but she sang it so joyously, and then the really beautiful thing is to come to find out the unexpected consequence of all this is that she says that because of the music project, because of what she has accomplished, which she has accomplished, not me, not anybody else, but she has accomplished, because of that, she is having a relationship with her mother for the first time, and it's humanized her to a mother who abandoned her and left her to the grandparents, who resented her and locked her in a room in the dark and slide food to her under the door, and men would come in the night to sexually abuse her with the belief that having sex with a woman with albinism would cure AIDS, and through all of that, right, um, she is has a joy that is, is palpable, and a strength that I think is undeniable, and the music had has such force 
that it was able to bridge this gap that had never been bridged before. And who could predict that? Right? We didn't even know if there would be a record. We didn't know if anybody would care. We didn't know if anybody would, uh, would listen to it. But, you know, to me, the record's a success because of that. Forget everything else, you know, even if it had never been released. But it probably would not happen unless it had been released. And we're very fortunate in that Paula from WOMAD, Paula Henderson, has been so, so, so supportive. So there's somebody from really the epicenter of world music genre that is insightful, smart, open-minded, uh, progressive, looking towards the future of it, willing to take chances, uh, and, and, and is, is champion, you know, so many, uh, the Malayan Oslo is a good one, the Chili Chong, you know, all these artists that they brought, they brought over and, and would have gladly brought Gombo Prison over, but obviously that wasn't uh, possible because of the, uh, prison aspect, but, um, but with, with, with Tanzania Albinism Collective, I think it was, it was a, the, the, the fullest realization of their 37-year history of, of bringing music, not just from diverse cultures, and not just from the 1% of different countries, and not just from the countries that tend to be the most populous or the most featured, like Mali and Cuba and, and um, South Africa and Brazil, but really, really, really to give a voice to the otherwise voiceless. Well, I know you say that you don't like to think of yourself in this equation, but uh, you are a tremendous voice for, uh, I think, really well-needed change uh, and doing really, really good work. Prisoners have been released directly as a result of the prison project record that you just described. These are beautiful things, and these are not little things. You know, in, a, in a business that traditionally just uh, deals in the trivial and the superficial, uh, this, is, this is real life. And I always tell people that it's really hard to hate someone when you feel like you understand them. That's a beautiful thing. We've been talking to Ian Brennan, he's a producer, he's an author. Uh, Zamba Prison Project and the Tanzania Albinism Collective are two projects that he's worked with really well. He's always producing great records. Ruth Matre and uh, Bob Forrest, great singer songwriter, and for other labels, and the Mouse Boys, and the Good Ones, and many, many more projects, and hopefully many, many more to come, both with us and I'm sure other people. And uh, the latest book is called How Music Dies. We're trying to keep it living, so um, you should definitely check that out. And thank you for being our first guest and our first podcast, and thank you for trusting us.